ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И привидели их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just remember, if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. Becoming a monthly sustainer for a mere $5 or $10 helps me give you in-depth discussions about Russia and the wider region that you won't find anywhere else. You can help support the podcast by going to seansrussiablog.org. We know how the Russian Revolution turned out. We know that the Bolsheviks took power. We certainly argue about the revolution's origins and end, its key moments, and why the Bolsheviks were victorious. But how did people experience it? How did those in the lower classes understand what was happening around them? In what ways were Russia's revolutionary years a mix of hope, rage, despair, promise, confusion, and anxiety? To get some insight into these issues, I've turned to one of my favorite Russian historians, Mark Steinberg, to get a sense of how people experienced the Russian Revolution. Mark Steinberg is a professor of Russian history at the University of Illinois. He's the author of many wonderful books, including Proletarian Imagination, Self, Modernity, and the Sacred in Russia, 1910-1925, Voices of Revolution, 1917, Petersburg Fendisiekel, and, with Nicholas Rezanovsky, A History of Russia, now in its eighth edition. His most recent book is The Russian Revolution, 1905-1921, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Mark Steinberg. Well, as, as you know, there have been many, many books written about the Russian Revolution, and your new book, and, and really your past books generally, you really try to capture how people have made sense of what was happening around them, their emotions and their experiences. So what does your focus on experience allow us to understand about the revolution? Well, you know, I, I have to react to the to the terminology, which is sort of partly what interests me. It's been people's language and how they interpret what happens during history, any time of history. And so, you know, even the words you use, like making sense or emotions or obviously experience, is already raises sort of what it is I'm trying to do, which is ask questions about how is sense constructed? It's not just me making sense. How do they get meaning uh, out of the lives, out of history as it's unfolding? Emotions, yes, because though they're, again, inaccessible to us in some ways, uh, but the relation, we tend as historians to look at words and ideas, but obviously there is no such thing as a, a word or an idea that hasn't been expressed with, with passion and with fear and other sorts uh, of emotions. So I think when I look to experience, it's, it's a word that really, for me, is a way to get at that whole process, sense-making, the way language is entwined with feeling, uh, the way history is unfolding in their lives without them seeing the long trajectory the way the way we do. So what does it what does it add to our understanding of the revolution? That's actually the hardest question. It's easier to say what I'm trying to do than the ultimately bottom line. What did I discover? What's different? And you know, one way I, I would answer it because I really don't fully know the answer, which is why I, I often write books that are meant to be talked about and discussed with students to provoke thinking, not to close down answers. So that, that's my cheating way of saying I don't have a direct answer. 
But I would say one thing that uh, I've noticed students notice is clear, direct, straightforward narratives of this produced that. This is the meaning of this event. This is why this happened and why that didn't happen are sort of broken apart, are sort of, you know, literary scholars would say deconstructed. But, you know, really what I th- I'm actually struck, students, at one point I was talking to a student who was reading some of this material and, and his response was, the Russian Revolution was a madhouse. It was a bunch of insane people running around, screaming at the top of their lungs, not listening to one another, each one with their own vision of what they think is actually happening. A, a, a complete, you know, insane asylum. And that was a complaint. It wasn't, it wasn't an analytical uh, intervention initially, early in the course. But as time went on, actually what it became was we kept coming back to this. It, to one point when I made some argument, one of these same one of these students who had been engaging this sort of um, complexity of these events said, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry, Professor Steinberg, but that's way too simple. Remember, we're dealing with human beings, and human beings are full of complexity and contradiction and uncertainty and anxiety, and therefore you can't make such a simple argument. And, and in a way, I think that's what exploring experience, which is a a simple word that's actually really full of dense possibilities of what it actually might mean to us. That what it what ultimately it does is it gets rid of any simple narratives in order to focus on the, the multiplicity of voices and the multiplicity of feelings and especially their contradictory nature. And then we return to okay, can we talk in some sort of coherent way about? all that complexity and richness and and confusion. In other words, the madhouse isn't just a madhouse. It actually has, one might say, method in the madness, uh, but not one method. So I think think that's what I get at, which is still a way of saying this opens up all sorts of possibilities for discussion, for interpretation, rather than close it down, which is what historians, we tend to do when we try to well, when, when I write a textbook, you know, the history of Russia that I, that I work on, that tends not to be rich in the multiple confusions of human experience, which is, I think is, means I'm further from the truth in a textbook type argument. Well, what I, what I really like about this, this method and the way you presented the revolution too is that, you know, most stories of the revolution are written backwards in this sense of, you know, the outcome. So how did we get from point A to point B, right? Knowing what point B is, you know, how did the Bolsheviks come to power, essentially, has been the standard question. And what you do with your with the liveliness of your sources and these voices, is that it you get a sense of how it unf- how things unfold, like you're, you're kind of sent on this ride where you are kind of part of and, and this is one of my things that have been missing from a lot of histories of the revolution is that sheer chaos. That sheer the breakdown of you know everyday life and you know into kind of this unmanageable situation where of confusion right of hope and despair uh, uh, together. So in this sense, and and this really comes out because of your sources. Uh, so talk a bit about your sources and especially the newspapers and documents you use that are trying to reflect the mood of of people, particularly lower class people. My sort of engagement with different types of sources and trying to figure out how they can speak of just that sort of, as you say, the chaos, the confusion, the, the, the hope and despair that are all mixed, 
began actually when I started working on the, the earlier book, Voices of Revolution. And the way I did the research involved me, and, and it grew into this, this book in some ways as well, uh, me working with archivists in the Russian archive over a period of years, telling them what sort of documents I was looking for. And, and the simplest way I could explain it to them is I want not boring stereotyped documents that are clearly just rehashing something they read in some political pamphlet, but in which there's a sense of something alive, I dare say even a sort of authenticity, although that's a problematic concept for in any historical text, everything's shaped by various things. And there's always an awareness of audience, but looking for voices that were sort of rich and dynamic and alive and seemed in somehow some way real, even if not totally eccentric, they seem part of other uh, patterns. And so it isn't just a certain type of source. I mean, I like letters to those in authority. I like texts where people are trying to tell people, this is what I need. This is what the revolution needs. But the archive's full of that. It's also full of very boring, you know, here's my list of demands. And it's exactly the same as the list of demands at another factory or another village. And besides, I read it in the SR program. And so, you know, it isn't just the source base, which is in one part, and I'll get to newspapers, archival, uh, and especially texts from mem- the population to those in authority. Uh, but, you know, it's it's a way of approaching those and looking for certain types of voices. And a lot of Russian archivists told me, oh, it's a very dangerous place to go because you need to be able to show that this is these are typical. So many of those rich, alive, one might say authentic voices are not typical. There may be fit into patterns, but they're not typical. So in a certain sense, there is a risk I, I take by looking for richer voices because they're not so characteristic. They're not a hundred that exactly the same. So that's one thing. It's not just the archive, but it's the type of tone that I'm looking for, the type of human feel uh, there. The other has been that I've been using newspapers for a while, and obviously newspapers are a problematic source. All you have to do is read the press now, but especially in Russia uh, at the time, uh, before the revolution, you know, from 1905 to 21, the period that I mostly look at. And there's problems of censorship. Before 1905, there's censorship. After 1905, there's censorship after 1917. But what I find, you use the word, this is history unfolding. At its best, that's what good journalism offers us, especially when it's not, when, it, when it's a, when sort of the journalists are in the city and wandering around and talking to people. And I realize, you know, they're selling newspapers, especially the commercial popular press, which I find to be really the most interesting, more interesting than the political press, the party press, where they have an argument to make, though you can hear voices from the population in those things. But reporters who want to tell an exciting story, in that sense, they're like me, they want something interesting, because it sells newspapers, but they're really, you know, also wandering the streets and listening to voices. And most interestingly, they themselves as writers are trying to make sense of that world. And they feel the chaos, and they feel the confusion. And some of them don't even have clear politics. Uh, which is actually really interesting. So there is that archival body. Then there's this sort of lively newspaper. And, you know, newspapermen used to like to say it's history, the first draft of history. History is a, in its roughest uh, unfolding form. Uh, and I find that quite appealing. And then, as you know, the peculiar, I don't know, thing that I do in the, in the three narrative chapters in, in the structure of the book 
is to say what happens if first we tell by period, we tell the story historians tell, the coherent story focused on cause and effect and a consensus among historians as to what happened as it really was in the Ronkian sense. Uh, and then how are newspapers talking about that very same moment as, especially when they say, this is history, we know we're living history. So they too are doing their historians thing. And I find it was quite fascinating to, and surprising to me how different in some ways their story was as it was unfolding. So those, those are sources, I, I would say, these sort of rich archival voices and also newspapers that I found myself attracted to more and more. I also want to ask you about your periodization, right? Which is, of course, a big question for how do we underdate the Russian Revolution and, and how you date it is how you understand its origins and its ends and, and how it how it progressed. And, and your uh, dates for this book is uh, 1905 to 1921. So why did you choose this span of years as opposed to something else? Well, you know, it, it's funny because as I look through the, the whole literature on the Russian Revolution, Everybody seemed to have a different chronological right. spread. It's like you could start in the 1880s or 90s. You can go up through Stalinism. You could just do 1917 or just the war through the Civil War. Sort of all depends on the questions you want to ask, right? Uh, that's what all chronology does. And, and to a degree, the way I set it up, so again, in a classroom among students talking about this, uh, I, I note there was a reason. I, I note all the different choices that that one can make because I actually hope students would ask the question. I mean, chronology one might might look like the most boring part of history. It's like chronology. It's dates, names, and dates, right? But in a way, the very as you as your question suggests, and I want students to to think about it is uh, and and when we teach is it's never arbitrary. It always involves a certain argument. So that leads to your question. I mean, what's What's the argument uh, implied? And, and again, there's a lot of possibilities, and I don't want to foreclose them. One of them how, is how important the 1905 revolution is. Lenin, of course, says it's the dress rehearsal for 1917, but that, that he has his own reasons for saying that. It's not the dress rehearsal because so much happens in the years after 1905. But without 1905, without it's the, the effort to transform society without the creation of Soviets, which had much less party leadership than they would in 1917, without the unity between the street, if one could call it that, workers, soldiers even, though less so, and the liberal as well as sort of left-wing socialist intelligentsia, without that moment of, of attempt to create a democratic and socially progressive society, even perhaps under the czar, who refused, obviously, uh, or compromised very little, that, that I think what happened in 1917 makes no sense, because this wasn't that long before. It's only a dozen years. It's mo many of the same people. So that's one thing is I think it's easy to forget. We, we sometimes treat failed revolutions as not really revolutions. You have to succeed. Um, and I think it didn't completely fail, created a Duma, created memories, it created uh, a, a level of freedom in the press that had not existed before, you know, really had changed the terrain uh, in many ways, as well as became this sort of touchstone uh, to remember. But just as important is the years between 1906 and when the war breaks out. And when we often talk about, you know, where does the revolution begin? Of course, the war is extremely important. 
But the experience of, again, you mentioned uh, hope and despair, in a way that is, which is what we see in Revolution, and we see it after 1917, that is the story to, in its simplest forms of what happens between 1905 and 1914. Enormous hopes, enormous possibilities, and enormous frustration and anguish and despair and a sense of this isn't going anywhere. And I think everything that happens in 1917, however much World War I really altered the terrain in all sorts of important ways. Fundamentally, it grew out of that experience after 1905. So I think you can't tell the story without that. Now, I could have started in the 1890s and maybe made a similar point, but I think it's that moment of attempted revolution, attempted transformation, and then the experience of living with the sort of really ambiguous outcome of 1905. It's not a failure and it's not a success. That, um, that really sets the stage. And I think it also sets the stage for understanding that 1917 is not neither the end point nor the beginning point. Uh, it's in the middle of an ongoing process because what happens after is a sense of now we're going to see the hope that we dreamed of. And it doesn't take long, and we could argue about all the reasons that happens, where people become quite disappointed. And the anger expressed even by many workers, by people who sympathize to the revolution about the inadequacy of what happens after 1917, uh, I think grows out of the same thing that they had just experienced since 1905. So it all fits together. Now, ending in 1921, at times I thought is not right. Obviously, it's the end of the Civil War. It's when Bolshevik power, because everybody thought the Bolsheviks wouldn't survive, even Lenin doubted it. I mean, this was a widespread assumption that they were going to fail. They win the Civil War, and that is an important question. How do they do what is almost uh, what no one, very few people uh, expect? But in, in some ways, if I wanted to carry the story beyond 21, where you already see, you see enormous amount of excitement and you see already disappointment uh, by 1921, then the whole of the 20s becomes this sort of second, one might say second post-1905 situation, which would require me to tell the story of Stalin's revolution in the same sort of way. And it, it, it just becomes too ungainly, actually. But it would work. It would work. Yeah, no, I think so. And I, and I felt that, that going to 1905, it, you were also trying to capture a mood. And that's a mood that you also reflected in your last book on St. Petersburg, which is this, this period of anxiety, you know, I mean, what I mean by that is, is these contradictory feelings of hope and despair and really an uncertainty for tomorrow. Uh, and, and I, and I thought that in, in going in this book on the revolution, going back to 1905, you were trying to paint that picture of that mood that just really bursts forward with 1917. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it does, as you say, it reminds one that mood, feelings, whether you, whether they're anxiety or hope or despair or, or rage and anger, which is also uh, on both sides of the story, uh, especially the rage and anger against the elites, which is a very important part of what happens in 1917, that that is something that's really hard for us as historians to document because it's that intangible. But I, I just don't think anything makes sense in 1917 or 1921 uh, without, without trying to come to grips with, with those complex emotions 
Uh, it is also what revolutions are about. You know, revolutions are not, I mean, of all the events in human histories, uh, wars are probably comparable, but, you know, they may look like people are fighting for power or the government is overthrown, but really it's where everything is blown open in terms of possibility. And it's a time of enormous uncertainty. I mean, no one, there, there probably are very few revolutions where people know the, what the outcome is going to be. And the anxiety is enormous. And so again, going back to the notion of getting at the experience of history as it's unfolding, I think that's central to the experience of the revolution, even if we focus just on 1917. And, and that, of course, leads to my next question, which is you begin your narrative with, quote, modern revolutions are bacchanalias of words. And, and you focus in on a lot of these this explosion of words, new words to try to, not new words necessarily, but words to try to capture what people are feeling, what they're hoping for. So what do you mean by, why did you open this book with that sentence? And what do you mean by it? Well, it's interesting because in, in a certain sense, I the real starting uh, epigraph that I use in the introduction actually, well, there's two. One is Berdyaev's comment about uh, about the Russian Revolution, where he said it's a it's a lot more fun to read books about the revolution than actually experience it. Uh, and I thought that was rather, as he says, more pleasant, you know. And then from Victor Serge, who who sympathizes with the revolution, unlike Berdyaev, uh, who doesn't, who who is basically saying, you know, history is nothing but a, you know, the way scholars write history is a big lie because there's no blood, there's no pain, there's no violence. And, and I think in, in a way the, the, the my statement about modern revolutions or bacchanalias of words is really precisely in, in both words, both the bacchanalia and the word part to get at what is missing, whether you're on, you don't like the revolution from Berjaev's point of view or you admire it, from uh, Serge's point of view, but you recognize that the scholar's story is a lie, it's, it's, or at least it's inadequate. So bacchanalia is, an is the important phrase there in some ways. I mean, the words are, are sort of goes back to our earlier discussion of sources. That's what we have, right? We can't, as much as I wish, I could go back in time and do what, as you know, in my first chapter, the one I think that uses that line, wander the streets. Imagine if we could wander the streets in the spring of 1917 and go to rallies and talk to people. And, you know, I fantasize about it. I create a chapter that's based on that sort of fantasy. But we can't. We can't go. All we have is the evidence of words. So that's partly the obviously pointing to the importance of all those words as our raw sorts of evidence. But the notion of revolutions as bacchanalias is, was not just an interesting metaphor uh, or even a reference to things are, things are full of, there's like too much, there's excess, there's profusion, or even that the way in which people talk, it's as if they're, it's as if they're drunk. Uh, and there's no doubt about the drunken emotion there's also real drunkenness, of course, during revolutions, especially in Russia in 1917. But but there is a sort of almost emotional quality of feeling like there. This is a bacchanalia, uh, a drunken bacchanalia. But but the the other meaning of choosing that word is how much Russians talked about bacchanalias themselves. They talked about, especially again in those years uh, between 1905 and 1917. Uh, especially before the war, but even in the war, they talked about 
Russian life is a bacchanalia of violence. There seemed to be so much violence in society. And, you know, we often talk about the sort of continuum of violence, uh, as Peter Holquist has said, from the beginning of the war to the end of the Civil War. But there's a bigger continuum of violence, and that is the years after the 1905 revolution was full of street violence, violence against self. There was a suicide epidemic. But when people talked about why is there so much violence, you know, stabbings and fights, it was often in terms of a bacchanalia, a sense, again, of a sort of drunken excess. And they use the word, of course, uh, in terms of sexual life, uh, which we tend not to see as intimately connected to politics. But the way people talked about prostitution, the way they talked about sexual behavior, the breakdown of family and tradition was also, they used the same word, they used bacchanalia. And so in a weird way, it felt like before the war came even, that there was a sort of bacchanalia underway in Russia. And that was a bacchanalia of violence, and it was a bacchanalia of sexuality. And in a way, it was a bacchanalia of words already, in the sense that everybody's trying to figure out what to, what to do, where to go, what does it mean, what did 1905 mean, what's our future? Everybody's, and the freer press after 1905 allows that. So, so I found, because I want to get at their point of view, the, the phrase bacchanalia just kept sort of haunting this story uh, in, in an important way. In, in speaking to that too, then, because you also talk about that there is a politics of the street. And, and you, you talk about this a bit, you know, we talk about this in, in before 1917, but it really, again, in 1917 kind of fills, fills spaces in public. Public, public space becomes incredibly important because People are just out in crowds. There is the politics of the crowd, the presence of the crowd. So talk about the politics of the street in, during 1917. Again, characteristically contested and also chaotic space. You mentioned the issue of public space. The issue of controlling space is really important, right? You know, who controls the streets? There's demonstrations, there's police. One might say the street also includes other public places, um, including factories, which are sort of shared uh, spaces. Who controls that? Who controls uh, the village? You know, who controls the commune? Who controls the land? So one could read the street as a broader sense of all those shared public spaces, especially where you see the the, the, very, the lower classes uh, engaged. So one could really, if one spends time looking for the street, one finds that same story of enormous um, struggle, contestation, uncertainty um, over very important public spaces. But, but then there's the question, is that, what is the politics there? And, you know, when we, t we, we talk about modern revolution, sometimes there's this notion, right, there is the street. This is the revolution of the street in the sense that, you know, the Arab street or in the most recent revolutions wants this as if there's a voice that comes from the street. And, and what I find is that the street is also, even if one takes it as all the lower classes contesting public spaces, very contradictory feelings. Um, what are the political stakes for the street? I think one of them is freedom. Uh, and freedom is just a, it's, one of, it's another one of those words that mean a lot of things to a lot of people, but everybody's demanding freedom. But what does it actually mean? So it's, it's this sense of, I, I think freedom is a goal, but there's not a consistent or coherent 
uh, single answer as to what that freedom is. The other is what which one sees on the street, and I think it's connected to freedom, is this, again, emotional anger at those who have controlled their lives, people's lives for so long. And so I think part of the politics of the street, I, I can't think of a, any other word, but a, but a to- sort of rage. Uh, and rage is not a pretty emotion. It's uh, It worried all the political elites. They felt, you know, there was too much violence, there was too much anger, there was too much condemning of all elites. You know, and it, you see all these texts where people say, the socialist intelligentsia and the liberal intelligentsia and the czar, they're all the same. All they want to do is control our lives. And that's an idea of freedom, but it's also grows out of a type of rage, which I think grows out of a long history of, of one might say, social injury, of a sense of constantly being constrained. So the politics of the streets, partly about freedom, it's partly about power, controlling public space, but a lot of it is about, this is where you're going to play out uh, your resentments over years and years of mistreatment. And that's not, it's not pretty, it's not simple, it's not what intellectuals or political leaders might want. It's unruly and it's very democratic. And this is something I think that comes out with um, with Maxim Gorky's columns during 1917. He's he's very concerned. It seems he, it's he's troubled, even though he's he he is on the side of the revolution. He's very troubled about the descent of humanity, the 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 kind of de evolution of the human spirit into this kind of animal rage and violence. And he, he, he writes about this a lot through those years to communicate that sense. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you've described it well, and it's hard to resist quoting Gorky <laughs> in this text. And I'm not the only one who's been attracted to his perspective. I mean, Orlando Figes in his book, though we disagree on certain aspects of it, we also keep coming back to Gorky. And I think part of it might be, there's a way in which we know what side Gorky's on. He's on the side of democracy and freedom and people's power uh, and socialism even. So it's not that he's a reactionary, and yet he's so desperately worried about what he likes to call the cultural backwardness of people, the way they won't use freedom right, the way we're not going to create socialism, the lack of good human material. And he's not Lenin saying this. You know, he, he's, he's saying it with much more less stake. He doesn't have political power. He's not seeking political power. He's not even responsible for making this work. But but his um his sensitivity to it also points to the to the enormous risks that those who are trying to create power, whether it's liberals in nineteen seventeen, in the beginning of nineteen seventeen, or it's moderate socialists later in the year, or it's the Bolsheviks in October, this is not going to be an easy process because People want democracy and they want freedom and they want change. But as Gorky continually says, look at how it turns out. And yet we know he's not like many conservatives who just say, well, you know, the people are so backward. What do you expect? They need dictatorship. So it makes it a more tragic and and real story. Now, the revolution, of course, is not just confined to cities. It's not just confined to Petrograd and Moscow, but it, it it unfolds also in the vast countryside of Russia and into the, the greater empire. So how's the revolution, the revolutionary years experienced by, by women, uh, and, and particularly women in the countryside and in the village? As you know, I, when I decided to do a chapter on 
the rural revolution, I decided to try to see, to tell the story in a somewhat unfamiliar way, which is, you know, from the perspective of women in the village. And partly it's because I, you know, one, because it's harder to do. It, there's so many gaps. We know, we hear their voices so little. We know the basic trajectory of urban revolution. They want land, they want freedom. Again, the question of what freedom is, it's often to be left alone. The complication for women and the few voices we can hear and also forms of behavior that we can see is that as people have noted about women in general, in most societies, in Russian society, in Russian uh, peasant society in, in particular, is that women have a real central place to play in communities. Uh, in families, in bonding the community together. They're out there on the streets. They're often in the lead of making uh, the revolution and had been from, for many years, going back also in 1905 and before, where you know, women are in the front of peasants going to seize land, often with their babies in arm, because they're sort of symbols of that community and that cohesion. And yet, and of course, we know that in the city, the women start the revolution. I mean, International Women's Day, everybody knows this. And so given the importance of women's role in society, especially rural society, their enormously active and important role in the revolution itself, what is sort of striking is how quickly they get pushed off the stage of history. Um, they cease to be central actors. Uh, men take over. You know, it's like when the army's demobilized and the young men go back to the village to make the land revolution, you know, thank you very much, ladies, but, you know, Bobby, you know, get out of my way. It's now the young men are home. We're from the army. We're going to run this show. And, and I think what that suggests is if we tell the heroic story of the revolution, the men come back, they create councils, they seize the land, that it, it might slightly romanticize the, the reality of what revolution is, is about. And one of the things revolution is about is the power of some people, not others. We usually think of that, yeah, the people are in power and the bourgeoisie or the landlords are kicked out. But no, it's also men have taken power and are pushing women aside. And so again, it's another one of those hope and failure dichotomies that we see. It's another one of the ways in which real life of the revolution is, um, it depends on whose experience you're looking at. And that's, of course, half the population. They have good reason to feel often disappointed. And another thing with the, our understanding of the revolution is that we, we tend to, and, and this is less and less, of course, but the fact that this is also Russian empire with that's a multi-ethnic and a multi-confessional state and society. So how did the revolution reverberate into non-Russian areas and, and, and non-Russian people? How did they respond? You know, <laughs> we can go on for hours on this, right? Uh, one of the things, and I'm guilty of it as many historians are, I've spent most of my career focusing on what went on in the urban centers. Um, that was partly choice. I see myself as a historian of cities. But if I'm going to write a book on the Russian Revolution, in its way it wasn't true so much in Voices of Revolution, it is that, and I believe in the multiplicity of voices as part of the story I want to take, even within the, tell even within the city, you know, it, I realize that that I really need to have many more perspectives. And, you know, a lot of us ignored the depths of the empire for all sorts of reasons. One is we don't know the languages. There are fewer sources. It's hard enough to study women uh, in the countryside. Uh, imagine studying, and I hope to find, you know, women in the far reaches of empire, but there's very few sources without me going into the field and also learning the languages. So it, it was a, both a failure that I hadn't paid as much attention to this before and also a 
a felt an inability to completely grasp the story. And the thing is that, you know, what we find is it's so multiple. I mean, one of the main contributions that people worked on the empire in recent years, the Russian empire, is that every region had its own particular histories, its own particular relationships. There's no singular model of imperial rule. As somebody said, you know, the, the Russian Empire is a gigantic muddle that, that came from Petersburg trying to make sense of how we're ruling this country. But so what I did is rather than try to say, here is a coherent historian's narrative of the experience of empire, I simply decided to take three very distinctive people um, and use them as case studies of what's a much bigger story uh, that would have many more choices and patterns. And that was a, a Ukrainian uh, activist, Vinichenko, and uh, Mahmoud Behbudi in, in Turkestan, and then Isaac Babel, representing, representing in a weird way, all three represent peculiar ways of looking at the history of their, of their particular group. And I would say, if I could, if to oversimplify, if there are any common patterns, they all tell very different uh, and very rich human stories, because that's what I was getting at. One of the patterns is that, that struck me in all three cases is that simple categories like nationalism, national independence, overcoming the empire, were never, once you get down to the individual experiential level of these three individuals, three men, because that's what I was forced to do, is that, you know, they never feel completely comfortable as either socialists if they're socialists, liberals if they're liberals, nationalists, uh, though they're all very concerned with the fate of their own particular people, with Muslims of Central Asia, with Ukrainians in the empire, uh, with Jews, deeply concerned with the sufferings, the discrimination, the lack of freedom, the need for some sort of emancipation. That's what they share, but they also feel uncertain about is nationalism the solution? Is the solution coming from Petrograd? What what we need, and in in a weird way, they all favor some way of imagining uh, the idea that maybe there can be this post-imperial society of citizens. Maybe there's a way that Jews and Muslims and Ukrainians could be part of some new society where diversity is respected, where everybody's included, but not just marching off into a sort of nationalist independent direction. Now, there are others who were nationalists and favored absolute independence, but I liked their struggle with these different possibilities. And, and that's, I think, I think that's not the only response in empire, but I think it's one of the most important ones, is that it isn't simply a, a simple story of, we've been oppressed, goodbye, we're leaving. That's, that is a story. It's an important one. But it's more, again, the struggle to come to grips with how does one live in a new society that is both diverse and respects your particularity without losing all sense of commonality with others. And so their uncertainty and their struggles and their, their ambiguities is what, what struck me. They all end tragically, but that's also part of history. Yeah. And, and this ambivalence, of course, uh, and this interest in or struggle with the new society is is a very powerful feature of modern revolutions and in, in the sense that not only are you thinking about or experiencing today you're dreaming about tomorrow it's a very future oriented positioning time is it's about thinking about the future so there is a lot of utopian thinking and dreaming of this new society what will it be like and and what are some of the utopian impulses that that characterize the Russian Revolution? Well, there's a lot. 
you know, and I preface it by saying, you know, I try to think about what is utopia because most of these revolutionaries, um, including the ones who hit my final chapter, which is called Utopians, it has again another set of three people. But actually, one could argue that the the empire stories I I tell of Nietzschenko and Bakhburi and and Babel are also utopians. But even the three stories I tell in the final one, which is Kalantai and Trotsky and uh, and the poet Mayakovsky, they all swore up and down they were not utopians. They hated the word. So I think it's really important to remember that utopia, when we say it, tends to mean to most of us, it certainly meant to them, impossible dreams that have no relationship to reality. And therefore, things are going to turn out bad. And that's our classic view of the Russian Revolution, right? They're all a bunch of utopians who had no sense of reality, and no wonder it was a big catastrophe. So to me, it's really important to to sort of reclaim the idea of utopia as uh, it is meant to others, and beyond the condemning notion of utopia. And that is this sense of we could be living in a very different place, the literal meaning of it, a very different society than we're living in now. And there's nothing more important than trying to achieve a society uh, that is, one might say, the complete negation of everything we hate in the present, hence your sense of, of time. So what is hated in the present? Um, one might say women being treated as inferior and no longer and not playing a key role. I mean, I think people like Kalantai had a vision that when women are treated like human beings, the whole world is going to change. Or workers whose envision proletarian revolutionaries, even Trotsky, you know, whose vision of when poor poverty doesn't exist, when violence is eradicated by, unfortunately, often through violence, when people are empowered at, at the local level. And again, I think freedom and power and equality, you know, the liberty, equality and fraternity, one might say, you know, are driving ideals that that those are sort of obvious, one might say ideals and dreams of what a democratic, free society would look like. The utopianism, why I use that word, is that these are complete negations of the present they live in. And the logic would be to say, you know, in terms of the hope and despair dialectic you mentioned, is that if you're a realist, you despair. You know the world is not going to be a better place. People, We hear this all the time right now. Uh, I just actually heard an interview on the radio where somebody said, "Oh, actually, we're all we're all doomed. Uh, human society is not good. We're not going to solve our problems. We're not going to solve climate change. We're not going to solve inequality. We're not going to solve national conflicts. And you know, it's all it's all bad. You know. So the real impressive thing for me, which is I call utopian in a positive way, is when people like Kalantai and Trotsky and Mayakovsky." And many, many others were willing to say, well, what is it? What good is it being a human being if you don't try to negate the, uh, well, Mayakovsky called it the shit of the present? If you just, you don't want to just accept it. One has to, to resist it. One has to challenge it. So one could list all those, you know, to go to your question, one can list all the various utopian ideals. The, the, one might just say the ideals for a transformed society. What's really core, what unites all of them, is a fundamental utopian society, uh, sensibility that it doesn't have to be this way. That if it ought to be different, it can be different. And that's a, a sensibility that that is easy to dismiss, but is actually very powerful, including for some people in our own time. And finally, given that this is the this year is the centennial of the Revol- Russian Revolution, and your narrative is asking us to try to experience the experience 
right? To, to, to try to get some sense of what people were thinking, how they understood their place in this great historical moment. What legacies and lessons do you think the revolution as you presented it gives us? I mean, I guess it sort of connects to what I was just saying about utopia. And maybe there's a reason that's the final chapter uh, of the book, apart from a, a little epilogue. It is given the present, uh, given the, uh, well, let's t- put it this way, given the odds against success in 1917 or in 1921 or in 1905, the odds against success were enormous. But the actual social problems at the time were also enormous. Uh, for them, it was war, it was inequality, it was forms of discrimination, it was imperial oppression, you know, the list could go on, all of which was, there was an attempt, a lack of freedom uh, to try to contradict. We might have a different list of problems in the world now. So it isn't necessarily, we need to go back to what Lenin said or what Trotsky said or what the Mensheviks said, we need to reclaim, or the anarchists, we need to reclaim a particular political program as the relevance of the revolution to us now. But the spirit of saying against all odds, when you look at the the darkness of the present, when you look at the problems we face, it's worth, in fact, it is not just worth, it's, it's absolutely necessary that one tries to uh, hope uh, and act on the basis of that hope. So it's this, I guess it goes back, it's the mood, it's the spirit of what the revolution meant, apart from the particular demands and the particular disappointments, that to me is, is, uh, is that a lesson? Because one lesson might be, well, it's, but it's gonna go badly. You're not gonna succeed. I prefer to say the lesson is to remember that it is what human beings do, is they stand up and say, this is not how it has to be. Uh, and and I think that is part of the the legacy of that and many other revolutions that's worth holding on to. That was Mark Steinberg, professor of Russian history at the University of Illinois. He's the author of many wonderful books on Russia's revolutionary history. His most recent book is The Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1921, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. I was crawling through a festival way out west I was thinking about love and the acid test At first I got real dizzy with a real rocking gang And then I saw the coma girl on the excitement gang And the rain came in from the wide blue yawn Stages I wonder Oh, come girl On the excitement gang Come on, Lisa On a motorcycle gang Come girl Come girl 